I'll start over. Hello, I'm Faith Rogers, host of today's program, COVID-19, Keeping Up with a Moving Target. This is the April 22nd update of DKB Med Radio's Coronavirus Educational Series. Thank you for joining us. Starting this week, we will provide twice-weekly 15-minute webcasts and podcasts featuring the latest news and answering your questions about COVID-19. These will be available on Wednesday evening and Friday morning. Sign up at covid19.dkbmed.com to be sure you get the latest updates. Just as knowledge of COVID-19 is evolving, this program will evolve over time as new information warrants. We welcome your suggestions to make this as beneficial as possible. Today's program is accredited for ANCC and AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Please visit our website for complete CME and CE information. To attest for CME and CE credit, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. There you will also find all of our previous COVID-19 programs and have access to other free CME and CE programs on a range of topics. Here are the learning objectives. With us today, we have Dr. Allwater, Clinical Director of the Division of Infectious Disease at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Dr. Allwater, thank you for joining us. It's all yours. Yeah, thank you, Faith, very much, and uh, welcome to the program. I do want to thank uh, DKB Med, the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing for their generous support in supporting this program. And as Faith has mentioned, you can uh, go to the URL listed here for additional uh, CME and other educational activities. So the week that we are facing continues to have lots of interesting aspects to the pandemic. New places are evolving as hotspots even after stay-in-place orders have been around, such as Boston. Uh, Georgia may be loosening its um, requirements, so we'll see if this uh, transpires to increase cases. We know, for example, in Singapore that they're now seeing upwards of a thousand cases of coronavirus with their liberalization of policies. So I think the virus is still very much with us on a global aspect. And unfortunately, the only real tool that we have at the moment for limiting the spread of the disease is social distancing and protective aware. I did want to mention, of course, that the epicenter in North America is uh, New York City. And this was published as a research letter in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, a couple days ago uh, from two hospitals. That's Columbia Presbyterian and New York uh, Cornell Hospital uh, while um, Medical School. And these are two academic institutions in the city. And the, the points here that I think are worth just commenting on is that at least for patients that require mechanical ventilation, there's certainly a strong male predominance. So we continue to see a tilt towards more men than women that yet remains without true explanation, whether it's epidemiological or genetic or other factors. Obesity, as you can see, is a significant percentage. Most North American studies to date have suggested BMIs uh, of over 30 uh, are about 40% of patients, and you see that here as well. Uh, this particular group, two hospitals, also, uh, unlike our experience in Baltimore, uh, used a lot of vasopressors in patients who required 
uh, intubation. Not certain why, but uh, clearly there thought to be a need. The other interesting aspect is that a fair percentage of patients who are critically ill required renal replacement therapy, and this is worth thinking about uh, whether uh, we would have not only enough ventilators, but uh, renal uh, equipment uh, to assist. And you can see the mortality figures here. I, it's worth noting that, of course, this doesn't uh, emerge for everyone because not everyone has been discharged or concluded, but it is lower than what was reported initially in Seattle. Uh, which was more in the uh, 40% range and or in Italy where it was 24%. So uh, whether it's a younger population or different uh, presentations, stages and so on is yet unclear, but gratifyingly, at least it's not as concerning as some other trends. There's intense interest with this novel coronavirus to find therapies that can impact this at times severe disease. Some of the drugs that have gotten the most attention have been the antimalarials, such as hydroxychloroquine, along with chloroquine have been part of the initial Chinese guidelines for treatment. All this based on in vitro evidence where uh, these drugs in a test tube with cell culture appeared to impair viral production. So I think it was thought to be perhaps a natural experiment to look at patients who have been on these medicines often for months and years to treat their primary rheumatologic illness. Here you can see uh, the breakdown of this registry from the rheumatology group to help examine this question. And in this group, most were female as opposed to male, which is certainly different than the COVID-19 experience. And you see some of the other demographics here that would also include a fair amount of comorbidities. Now, with patients being on it, you might expect that if it worked superbly, very few should get COVID-19. So these are, of course, all COVID-19 positives. We don't really have controls, but it is telling that among the medications these people used for their rheumatologic condition, uh, nearly a third were on hydroxychloroquine and at least of that subset, uh, about 40% were on no other immunomodulating medication, which means that they're not starting off as a handicap because they're more immune suppressed, perhaps because of steroids or other medications. And so with that aspect, it doesn't look like the drug is uh, highly protective. Additionally, there have been some self-reports gathered here, over 6,000 responses of uh, patients uh, who uh, cast a wider net, and 5% of those patients said that they have had COVID-19, uh, but half of those were actually taking hydroxychloroquine. Again, indirect evidence that probably this drug is not nearly going to have the impact, even when we get high-quality randomized controlled trials. So does speak to the fact that um, you may want to think twice before prescribing it for your patients. Now, uh, the National Institutes of Health and uh, has issued uh, treatment guidelines, which are a bit unusual for the NIH as an entity, but I think in this kind of pandemic, they thought, felt compelled, and they have uh, certainly carry a fair amount of weight. These are the major recommendations for treatment here, and 
basically hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine. Uh, they say there's insufficient data to recommend for or against, and clearly argue against the combination drug with azithromycin because of potential toxicities. The protease inhibitor, Colitra, otherwise known as lopinavir, ritonavir, they're recommending against based on available data. And any of the immunotherapies, uh, such as convalescent plasma or hyperimmune, IgG, again, insufficient data, as are the immunomodulators, such as IL-6 or IL-1. Uh, any of the more experimental immunomodulators are recommended against. So this is not too dissimilar from what the Infectious Disease Society of America included using a different uh, review process with GRADE. But uh, again, I think uh, before making recommendations, the idea here is a way for randomized controlled trials. But in the meanwhile, there's certainly no compelling evidence for the anti-malarial. So I think people are becoming less enthused with using them. One issue that certainly came up early was the recognition that the novel coronavirus uses ACE2 as a receptor present on many epithelial uh, cells in the lung and elsewhere. And there was a concern that people who might be on angiotensin converting enzyme inhibitors or receptor blockers may have worse outcomes. Now there's been animal model data both for and against uh, this sort of idea, but I thought it was interesting that this paper published in circulation research uh, was retrospective looking at over a thousand patients with hypertension in China and then uh, looked at uh, mortality rates. So these were hospitalized patients with COVID-19. And if anything, there seems to be a suggestion of a protective effect here that they thought was statistically significant. So at least not a danger signal uh, that's apparent and therefore in keeping with the current recommendations not to change your antihypertensives because of the concern of COVID-19. Lastly, um, I'll just uh, mention something that's uh, in a related topic. Everyone's wondering about vaccines. Probably the only active coronavirus vaccines that uh, have been uh, vigorously worked on recently have been those on the related coronavirus, the MERS-CoV. And of course, this is a virus that we think circulates in camels, um, the Arabian Peninsula, and still causes sporadic disease there. So reasons for a vaccine are reasonable. This was a phase one trial that looked, used a modified vaccinia virus. And interestingly, we know from coronavirus immunology, we think that it's unclear whether antibodies or T-cell responses are important. So this paper looked at both. And uh, the take-home points, I think, are that you did not get much immunity until you gave a second booster shot, which you can see in the upper uh, graph, where you have both low and high antigen doses there looking for plaque-reducing and neutralizing antibodies, which are thought to be the most effective for giving protective immunity. And then it does wane rather quickly. So this, uh, at least with this particular vaccine, uh, brings up the question of really how much you get from a vaccine series to get a durable and sustained response to try to curtail this pandemic. But perhaps that's not the whole answer. Uh, you can see in the bottom part, there's um, uh, presentations for T-cell responses. 
but those two don't seem to wane uh, seem to wane over time. And interestingly, the high dose group, the high dose vaccine wane faster than the low dose group. Uh, the good news is it seems safe. Of course, none of these patients were exposed to MERS-CoV. There's some concern about so-called antibody-dependent uh, enhancement, where if you get exposed to MERS after you've been immunized, you might get worse disease. This is something we saw with atypical measles back in the 60s and 70s with the killed vaccine. So this has been weighing on everyone's minds, but gives you a bit of a picture of some of the challenges that developing a um, SARS coronavirus uh, 2 vaccine uh, will face. All right. Thank you, Dr. Allwater, for those updates. We will now continue to the listener Q&A. To submit questions for Dr. Allwater, please send questions to qa at dkbmed.com. That's Q as in question, A as in answer, at dkbmed.com. If we are not able to address your question in this session, we will try to address it in another one. First question, there are several IgG, IgM tests for COVID-19 appearing online available to professionals only. How do we know which ones are reliable? And is it too early to purchase these kits, particularly for group homes and day programs? Yeah, Faith, this is a really uh, important question. And I think uh, the word to take home here is caveat emptor. You know, the FDA uh, relaxed its usual uh, regulatory powers to get tests out into the public. But this means that many kits that you might see, both for point of care or for professionals, meaning they have to be ordered by a doctor versus home kits, all may have been tested to some degree analytically, which means you know, you spike a sample and you can check it, but have not been validated clinically against clinical samples. So questions that you should ask are, are these tests clinically validated? And there are a few that have gotten at least initial FDA not, at least four that I know of. Uh, but still, it's unclear how well those antibodies really perform in terms of specificity and sensitivity uh, looking at extensive numbers to get the uh, real sense. The second aspect is we're not sure if these yet correlate with protective immunity. Just because you have antibodies, as I showed in the MERS-CoV vaccine, may not mean that you're going to have protective immunity. So these are all questions which I think we'll have better answers to in the next uh, weeks to a month or two, but yet I think I would wait till it really sounds, there's, I'm sorry, very sound data that a uh, test has performed well and people are endorsing it for its use and what you can reach for conclusions. What we are doing in our hospital is really only using our own in-house test to look at people that are with high suspicion of COVID-19 disease, but yet haven't tested positive by uh, uh, respiratory samples by molecular studies, because we know those tests maybe only have an 80% sensitivity. So that's where we're using serology on a very limited basis. Okay, thank you for that. What is the data around the success of using the plasma from a patient who has recovered from COVID-19 to treat a patient for the virus? Yes, there have been reports from um, Asia that this may be helpful. The concern is the right timing of therapy. Early on, it may help abort infection, but if used later, 
perhaps it would accelerate some of the immunopathogenicity of the uh, viral illness by giving even more antibodies, sort of fueling the fire, as it were. We really don't know, which is one of the reasons why there are high-quality randomized controlled trials planned regarding this. It's probably true that plasma certainly would work well for prophylaxis, but I think people do have concerns and wariness regarding uh, plasma treatment, and those also include TRALI, T-R-A-L-I, or transfusion-related lung injury, um, which is independent of the particular infection as well, which is about one in 5,000 people. So it's, it's something which I, I think is a little more fraught than others with potential complications, especially with more serious illness. So I, I wait to see till we have a greater experience. Okay, thank you. Our next question is, what can we glean from the data from antibody testing being performed in Los Angeles County? So the, the you know, LA County might have a younger population than some other areas of the United States. And the sense is that there's a, a fair percentage of asymptomatic people or people that didn't realize they were ill who may have acquired the coronavirus. And of course, this speaks to one of the reasons why there might be rapid spread. The debate has always been, is this an aerosol versus respiratory droplet transmission? But if people um, are not very ill, then it would be fairly easy to spread this virus unwittingly if you're close to someone that's not ill at all. Unlike the original SARS, where almost everyone became ill, when you can't identify who's sick, it's hard to really do a good job at uh, enforcing protective measures all the time. And I think this is one of the other reasons why universal masking is now advocated. Thank you. What do the data show about transmission of the virus within the same household? Here, uh, I think we still don't have a firm hold on this. Typically for influenza, which we have better studies to date, uh, anywhere from 10 to 18% of household people will contract influenza after an indexation in the household, depending on a number of factors, such as whether they have risks for uh, disease and so on. This is probably the same range. It could be higher. It's this asymptomatic transmission that we don't really know. Now, with contact tracing and additional studies, we'll have a sense whether the attack rate is really higher. I suspect it will be, in part because really no one is thought to really have protective immunity uh, from past infections with coronaviruses. So my suspicion is it will likely be higher. And I think it almost has to be because look at how many cases are across the globe just in a matter of months. Thank you. A few reports have come out that show relatively low prevalence of asthma in people with COVID-19. Are people with asthma at low risk of complications? Yeah, I, you know, I think I'd be careful here because if you're looking at people that get COVID and say, oh, only a few percent have asthma, that still may be higher than the number of healthy people in baseline populations. Also, typically asthma tends to be a younger person disease. Uh, so uh, I'd be very careful, and some people will say they have asthma when they really have chronic obstructive lung disease and vice versa. So 
until this is really better categorized in a, in a non-pandemic um, and uh, frenzied state that we are in right now, I think this is one of the ones I wouldn't think that they're necessarily protected. Um, they may even be at higher risk uh, on, a, on a, a percentile basis, so we'll have to wait and see. Certainly, we know people with influenza are at higher risk if they have asthma. Okay, great. Thank you again, Dr. Allwater, for joining us today. As a reminder, to claim CME or CE credit, please complete the evaluation at covid19.dkbmed.com and select today's activity. You'll receive your certificate immediately after. Any questions or issues, feel free to email us at the address listed. Don't forget to access our resource center on covid19.dkbmed.com. You'll find a range of information, including the latest COVID-19 data and statistics, medical society guidelines, and resources in Spanish. To all of our listeners, please be on the lookout for our next activity this Friday, featuring Sue Hansen, a clinical nurse specialist at Harborview Medical Center in Seattle, Washington, who is coordinating their COVID-19 efforts. We will send out an email when it is available later this week. Again, thanks for joining us and thank you for your dedication to patients with COVID-19. Thank you, Dr. Allwater. Thank you, Faith. Hey, everybody, uh, have a good week.